Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Stop paying those high retail prices for other optics that underperform. At Tract Optics, we're passionate about creating the best optics for hunting and long-range precision shooting. We know that having the right equipment can make all the difference in your experience. That's why we use the highest quality materials and the latest technology to produce optics that are durable, reliable, and perform exceptionally well in any environment. For more information, visit TractOptics.com. Again, that's TractOptics.com. Upgrade today with Tract Optics. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank two brand new sponsors to the Peter Schiff Show podcast. The first one is True Bill. Over 80% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about. True Bill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't want, don't need, or simply forgot you have. So go right now, truebill.com slash gold. It can save you hundreds of dollars a year. The second one is Mint Mobile. If you're one of those people who hates their phone bills and you're ready to cut the ties with the big wireless companies, Mint Mobile has got a plan for you. It's just $15 a month and you can get the plan shipped to your door for free. Then Mint Mobile has a new wireless plan tailor-made for you, and it's just $15 a month. And you can get the plan shipped to your door for free. Just go to mintmobile.com gold. Well, today was the day that the Federal Open Market Committee concluded their two-day meeting, and they announced to the world their decision on interest rates. But more importantly, Powell held his post-decision press conference. So I'm going to get to all the highlights or more particular, the lowlights of that press conference in a bit. But before I get started there, I want to talk a little bit about some of the economic data that came out not only earlier today, but earlier in the week that really evidences the stagflationary environment that we're in And these problems were not even mentioned in today's press conference. No one even cared about this economic data, even the data that came out today, which I might as well start with, which was the trade deficit in goods, otherwise known as the merchandise trade deficit. Last month, the May trade deficit was $88.1 billion. And the estimate for the deficit in June was for a slight increase 
to $88.7 billion. Not a new record high, but a larger deficit than the one that we had in May. Well, the May deficit was just slightly revised upward to $88.2 billion. Not that big a deal. But take a look at the June number. It soared to $91.2 billion. Not only does this far exceed the upper range of estimates, which went from a low of $86.9 billion to a high of $89.5 billion, but it is another all-time record high. In other words, this is the worst merchandise trade deficit that we have ever recorded in a single month, 91.2. Of course, it's not going to last for long. I mean, this record is going to get broken. It may even be broken as soon as July, but these records are going to fall like dominoes, and this is not happening because we have a strong economy. It's happening because we have a weak economy. People keep looking at these numbers as if it's somehow evidence of strength because we're buying so much stuff. Well, when it comes to an economy, strength is not measured by what you buy, but by what you produce. Strong economies produce more. They don't simply consume more. We are consuming more despite the fact that our economy is weak. How are we doing that? Well, the Fed is printing money and we are spending it. But that does not constitute strength. That really evidences profound weakness. In fact, you had Ken Langone, who was on CNBC earlier this morning. And and Ken did say some things that I agree with. I don't want to totally throw the guy under the bus. And he was correct in his assessment of the inflation situation not being transitory. But he thinks the Fed is making a mistake by not doing something about the inflation problem. He described the U.S. economy as being white hot, and so he didn't understand why the Fed is throwing fuel on this white hot economy. Well, the reality is these trade numbers show that the economy is not white hot. It's stone cold. He's confusing recklessly spending the money the Fed is printing with legitimate economic strength. It's not. And in fact, the only reason that the numbers look good is because of all this Fed magic with monetary policy. See, what Ken Langone doesn't seem to understand, it's the same thing a lot of people don't understand, is that the Fed is really not as clueless as people think when it comes to inflation. They're not missing the inflation problem. I think they understand that there's an inflation problem. They also understand that they would create an even bigger problem from their perspective if they tried to do anything about it, which is why they're not, which is why they are pretending that the situation is transitory. I mean, so many people just don't get it. Yes, they get the fact that inflation is worse than the Fed claims, but they don't understand why the Fed isn't doing anything about it because they don't understand that the Fed can't do anything about it without collapsing the economy. They don't understand that we have a bubble. It is the biggest bubble in history, and even the tiniest little pin would prick it which is why the Fed does not want to supply that pin. And in fact, all day today on CNBC, before we got the FOMC announcement on rates and the press conference, you had a lot of people that were coming on who just were scratching their heads and they couldn't understand why the Fed was still so easy. I mean, they agree that it was the proper policy originally, right? As soon as we had COVID and we were under lockdown and everybody was at home, everybody agrees the Fed did the right thing. 
uh, by printing all this money and cutting interest rates and doing QE. Now, everybody is wrong. The Fed did the wrong thing, right? I explained it at the time that the proper monetary response to the COVID lockdowns was to tighten monetary policy. Because again, what happened because of COVID, people who were productive and who were working went home and stopped working. So we stopped producing stuff. So the quantity of goods and services that were available to buy went down. The proper Fed policy response, which is exactly what the policy response should have been based on the original mission of the Fed to provide an elastic money supply, the Fed was designed to shrink the money supply when economic activity shrank. That's what they were supposed to do to maintain price stability. They're only supposed to increase the money supply when the economy is expanding. And that's the elasticity that the Federal Reserve was created to supply. So I pointed out in real time, if production was coming down, if fewer goods and services were going to be produced, then the Fed needed to drain liquidity from the system to prevent prices from really going up. The Fed not only did not do that, they did the opposite. Instead of draining liquidity, they added more liquidity. So they added more demand into an economy where supply was going down. And that's why we have this toxic combination of massive inflation. And we're just experiencing the beginning of that. There is a lot more inflation to come. We are at the tip of this massive iceberg. But nobody seems to get that. Everybody believes that what the Fed did initially was right. What they don't understand is why they're continuing those policies. After all, the economy is not shut down. We've now got the vaccines. People are out and about. So why is the Fed still buying $120 billion worth of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, given the fact that the housing market is on fire, that we have price increases that dwarf any previous records during the prior housing bubble that popped in 08. So we have a super strong housing market. Why is the Fed continuing to goose this overheated market the same way it was when we were in the depths of the pandemic lockdown? Why is the Fed still monetizing all this government debt and printing all this money when the economy is not nearly in the predicament that it was in a year ago? So this is why everybody is scratching their heads. Again, they don't understand that we haven't recovered. We've just become addicted to the stimulus. The stimulus is a monetary heroin. And not only can't the Fed withdraw the drug, the Fed has to continue to supply the habit with greater and greater quantities of the drug. Again, because the Fed made the mistake of going down this path, it now has to repeat the mistake by staying on the path. Because if they withdraw the stimulus, we have an even bigger crisis than the one that we would have had had they never supplied the stimulus in the first place, because all the stimulus does is delay the day of reckoning. But because we had the stimulus, there's a lot more to reckon with because the stimulus itself makes all the problems worse. And one of the problems that it has made worse is the trade deficit. We have a much larger trade deficit today than the one that we would have had, but for all the stimulus. In fact, getting back to these numbers, look at the increase in imports relative to the increase in exports. Our exports only rose by 0.3% 
on the month. Now, that was an improvement from the prior month where our exports actually dropped by 0.3. So we basically gained back 0.3. So it's about a goose egg uh, for those two months. But look at imports. Imports for May were originally reported as being up 0.8. That was revised to up 1.5%. This month in June, imports exploded by 1.5%. So the gain in imports is five times as big as the gain in exports, meaning that right the trade deficit is getting much worse. But look at the two months. Between May and June, exports were flat, no growth. Imports, on the other hand, were up 2.6%. We have a massive increase in imports, no growth in exports. This is like a company that is hemorrhaging red ink. These merchandise trade deficits are our losses. We are operating at a huge loss. And how is it that we're able to finance these massive deficits? Well, it's because foreigners are willing to trade the stuff that they produce and that we consume for financial assets because the world is willing to invest $91 billion buying U.S. bonds or U.S. stocks or stuff like that. But how much longer can we continue with these massive, massive trade deficits? Now we're looking at annualized trade deficits well above merchandise trade, well above a trillion dollars a year. Remember, we have budget deficits that are in the multiple of trillions. So we've never been faced with a situation where we've had a twin deficit problem this enormous. Now, I know no one cares about these numbers. You know, when the trade deficit came out, this record number, CNBC didn't even cover it. They didn't even bother to break to mention this record deficit because I know nobody seems to care. Once upon a time, the merchandise trade deficit was the single most important economic number that was released every month because people cared about it. In fact, the main reason that back then people blamed the 1987 stock market crash on, the catalyst for that crash was a trade deficit. We had an explosion in the merchandise trade deficit. We had an all-time record high trade deficit of $17 billion, right? That was an outlier. It was a big jump. We got $17 billion in one month, which was much larger than the typical deficit. As a result of that, you had the dollar go way down, big rise in the Japanese yen, the Deutsche Mark, the Swiss franc, and that spilled over into the bond market. You had a big drop in the bond market as a weak dollar pushed long-term yields higher. And so it was a weak dollar. It was rising interest rates that really precipitated the big one-day crash in 1987. So back then, people cared about the trade deficit. People paid more attention to the monthly trade deficit than they did to the monthly jobs report. Now, I don't remember when the trade deficit kind of got pushed to the back burner. In fact, it's not even on the back burner. It's not even on a burner. It's not even on the stove. It's not even in the kitchen anymore, let alone being on a stove. I'm not really sure how this transition happened, but nobody cares about it. And so because nobody cares about it, the situation has gotten much, much worse. Now, that doesn't mean that the trade deficit isn't a problem just because nobody's considered a problem. It's not a problem until it's a problem, right? Until the markets now recognize it, which means it's going to be a crisis, right? It's not going to be a problem until the problem becomes a crisis. But because Nobody has cared about the trade deficits, and it hasn't been a problem. The problem has gotten much worse, meaning the trade deficits had gotten much worse. Had the market done something about this, 
which is normally the case. Normally, a country would never be able to run trade deficits this big for this long because what would happen is its currency would drop sharply. Uh, That would put upward pressure on interest rates. That would make imports much more expensive. It would slow down consumption and it would solve the problem. Market forces would bring these runaway deficits back under control. But because the dollar hasn't tanked, because the Federal Reserve hasn't been pressured by rising deficits to raise rates, we've been able to continue these deficits, not only continue them, but expand them. So instead of the market solving the problem, the problem has gotten much worse worse. Now, that doesn't mean that it's never going to be a problem. It just means that it's going to be a crisis. And when it's a crisis, it is an even bigger problem. And that is where we are headed. I don't know about you, but I spend hundreds of dollars a month on subscription services. Many of them are on auto pay on credit cards. And sometimes you don't even remember which services you subscribe to. In fact, I remember one time I changed my wireless providers, but the old provider forgot to shut off one of the services. I think it was $10 a month. I kept paying it for about a year or two. I didn't even have the service. I eventually changed credit cards. They kept sending the bills. They didn't get paid and ended up going into collections and the whole thing screwed up my credit. All of this could have been avoided had I had a better way of keeping track of all these bills. That's where True Bill comes in. It's a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you no longer need, want, or simply forgot you had. On average, people are saving thousands of dollars a year with True Bill. See all your subscriptions in one place, keep the ones you want, cancel the ones you don't, and you can do it right from the app. And your True Bill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to do it yourself. No talking to humans, no difficult conversations. True Bill has over 2 million users and has helped save them over $100 million. In fact, people have saved hundreds of dollars from services such as DirecTV, SiriusXM, and even their auto insurance. I know when I sign up for a lot of things, you give your credit card number to try a service, you end up not liking it, but you forget to cancel it. Because the way a lot of these companies work, you get a month free, but if you forget to cancel, then you're automatically signed up and you get recurring bills. And sometimes you forget about them and you pay for stuff that you don't even need. So start canceling your unused subscriptions now at truebill.com gold. Go right now. That's truebill.com gold. It could save you hundreds of dollars a year. Next number I wanted to touch on is the durable goods numbers for June. These came out yesterday. And the consensus was for a pretty strong number, 2.1% increase in June. And that would have followed a 2.3% rise the prior month. Well, that month got revised up to an even bigger number, 3.2, which maybe takes some of the sting out of the huge disappointment for the month of June, which came in at just 0.8. So that was a much bigger miss to the downside than the revisions to the upside. But what would be more important and more concerning to the markets is the trajectory, which is a weakening number. And if you X out transportation, the number was even weaker. The prior month was revised up from 0.3 to 0.5, but the 0.8% gain that was expected for June That ended up being just 0.3. So the numbers there 
decisively weaker than expected. But what's more important is the trend, which is down. But probably the most concerning number for the people who are looking at the economy is the new home sales number, which collapsed in June for the third consecutive month. Now, prices continue to hit record highs. Take a look at these charts, and they continue to move up when it comes to home prices, but sales have now fallen. In fact, not only did this number come out way below the 800,000 forecast because we printed 676,000, but we also downwardly revised the prior month. May was initially reported at 760,000. It was revised down to 724,000. So why are home sales falling? Well, because home prices continue to rise. And even though mortgage interest rates are at all-time record lows, which is a massive subsidy, the prices are rising so rapidly that more and more people are getting priced out of the housing market, even though they've got these big subsidies in the form of artificially low mortgage rates. And I don't think the price increases are even close to ending. Because what's really important to consider when it comes to these home prices is the cost of construction, the cost of replacing the existing housing stock. That is what's really, really going up. Now, that is going to put a damper on people's ability to buy new homes. Because a new home, you're only going to get a new home if you can pay the developer a profit above his construction costs. I think what's going to happen is more and more developers are going to realize that it now costs so much to build homes that it costs too much for people to buy the homes. So a lot of this new construction is going to stop, which means a lot of the employment that was a function of this new construction is also going to stop. But people are still going to want to buy homes. They're just not going to buy new homes because they're too expensive. They're going to be bidding for the existing supply of homes that have already been built because there you don't have to pay these higher costs for materials and labor because those costs were already paid in the past and you already have the building there. Yes, you've got to pay uh, to maintain it and to fix stuff that has gone wrong, but the majority of the expense has already been paid by the current owner or the previous owners. But what I think that means is when you no longer have this supply of new homes coming on the market, you're going to see continued movements up in the price of the homes that already exist. I mean, I still think that most of the homes that exist right now in the country are still selling at prices that are not even close to covering what it would cost to replace those homes. I mean, if they burnt down and you had to rebuild them, it would cost a lot more. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But you know, that also means insurance rates are really going to rise. Because if you look at what it costs to insure your property, you can't insure it based on what it originally cost you to buy it. You have to insure it based on what it would cost you to rebuild it, right? So if a fire completely burns down your house and you've got to rebuild it, what's it going to cost? And if the replacement cost is much, much higher, then the insurance company has to charge you a lot more money. And of course, another reason that insurance rates have to keep going up is because the insurance companies can't earn any interest on the premiums that they collect because rates are at zero. So they have to compensate for those low returns by charging even higher premiums to uh, the people who are buying insurance. So everything associated with housing is going to keep going up. In fact, I read an article that I retweeted from MarketWatch and you know they pointed this inconsistency out regarding rents because rents in the CPI comprise one third of the CPI. And of course, housing costs are more than one third because there are other components of the CPI that relate to housing. But if you just look at rents, rents are a third. So that's the big enchilada. And according to the government, even though the CPI year over year is up, I don't know, about five and a half percent, something like that, certainly it's 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 at a much quicker pace if you just look at the last three or four months. But year to date, I think if you go backwards 12 months from the most recent number, you got year-over-year inflation or CPI of about 5.5, 5.6. During that same year, according to the CPI, rents have only risen by 2.5%. Now, that is a laughable number, but it's the number the government has used. And obviously, because the overall CPI is up 5.5%, the low increase in rents being such a big component, has actually been helping to keep that number much lower because it has brought down the average, especially considering that it's such a big part of the computation. That means that if you take out the rents, all the other prices collectively are going up much more than 5.5%. If rent increases of 2.5%, we're able to bring down the average so much. Well, MarketWatch points out that if you look at Realtor.com, which is a website that is actually showing real rents that people are paying because Realtor.com, they have properties for sale and they have properties for rent. And so they are studying the rent offers for now and then they're comparing it to what properties were renting for a year ago. And these are actual rents, right? These are just not the made up owner's equivalent stuff that the government is using, these are actual rents that people are paying. And according to Realtor.com, rents are up 25% year over year. Think about that, 25%. That is 10 times the official increase that the government is using to calculate the CPI, and that is the biggest single component of the CPI. So just imagine, If we have year-over-year inflation of 5.5%, when a third of that number is 2.5% increases in rents, imagine what the CPI would be right now if you replaced the 2.5% government number with the 25% private sector number from Realtor.com. I mean, you would be looking, I think, 
at a year-over-year inflation rate right now at 13%. And that would probably rank it as bad as any single year during the 1970s. Right now, we already have inflation. If we just made this one substitution of the Realtor.com rents for the government rents, if we just did that, we would have inflation that was worse than any year during the 1970s, except it's probably much worse because the rest of the numbers are probably understating the true magnitude of the price increases. So the real rate of increase year over year is probably closer to 20% than 13%. I don't know exactly where it is, but it is a very, very big number. The bad news is it's going to get bigger from here, which I think is a good point to transition back to the main topic of today's podcast, and that is the Fed decision on rates and the Powell press conference. Now, first of all, the press conference is always far more important than the actual announcement on rates or you know what it actually does on rates, which of course is nothing. The reason these press conferences are so important is because the Fed's monetary policy today basically consists completely of talking, right? There's no real action involved because they can't act. The Fed has already inflated such a big bubble, such an over-leveraged economy that actually using any of its tools, right, that it keeps talking about using, actually using these tools is really off the table. The Fed can't raise rates. They can't taper. But what they can do is talk about those things. So really, we have monetary policy that is 100% talk and no action, right? It's all bark and no bite. That's why the press conference is the only thing that really matters because nothing is actually going to happen. All we're going to do is talk about what's going to happen, and that's exactly what happened. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by the big wireless providers, if we've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month, I figured there's got to be a catch. But you know, after speaking with the company, I found out that there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service that's online only. So by cutting out the retail stores, there's no crazy overhead cost to get passed down to you in the form of these mystery fees. Instead, Mint just passes on the savings directly to you. And if you're looking for extra savings, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. So switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting for just $15 a month. Again, to get your new wireless plan for a low $15 a month, and get the plan shipped to your door for free, just go to mintmobile.com slash gold. That's mintmobile.com slash gold. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash gold. Now, before I get to the conference itself, I want to mention a couple of things from the official statement that was initially, you know, interpreted as, oh, somewhat hawkish. So within the official statement, in that language, the Fed made a statement that the economy is making progress, 
towards reaching its goals, right? Its goals of full employment and, you know, complete strength. And to the extent that we ever achieve this goal, well, that's when the Fed is going to start to taper. That's when the Fed at some point is going to start raising interest rates. So because the Fed claimed that some progress has been made, the initial reaction to the statement was, oh, this is somewhat hawkish, right? Because if we've made progress, well, now we're closer to some tapering. We're closer to some, you know, rate hike. However far in the future it is, we're a little bit closer because we've made some progress. And so if you looked at the markets immediately after the Fed statement, you saw a bit of an uptick in the dollar, a bit of a sell-off in gold, a bit of a sell-off in the bond market. Nothing dramatic, but that was the initial interpretation that this was somewhat hawkish. Now, I think it was tempered a little bit by the fact that the Fed removed from its official statement a reference to the vaccines helping the economy because now more people were vaccinated and so people were not as worried about getting COVID. And I think this is kind of an acknowledgement that you've got this Delta variant problem, real or made up, and that this may be somewhat diminishing the benefits that the Fed saw from the vaccine. The fact that now you've got this variant of COVID that is coming back and that is you know, kind of putting the brakes somewhat on the reopening. So probably if it wasn't for that, you may have even seen a little bit of a bigger reaction in gold and the currencies to the idea that the Fed was more hawkish. But of course, that is a bunch of nonsense. And to the extent that you thought that there were any hawks at the Fed or that Powell was a hawk, well, the actual press conference would have put those rumors to rest. Powell is an uber dove. As I've been saying, every press conference tops the previous press conference in the degree of dovishness. And I would still continue to say that, yes, this time Powell outdoved himself. It's just like the trade deficits. Those records keep falling like dominoes. Well, so does the Fed's record on dovishness. The only question is, when is the market going to wake up to this reality? Now, it is possible that today was the wake-up call because by the end of the day, by the time that the press conference concluded and there were no more questions, gold actually caught a bid. The dollar, which had been positive all day, sold off. So the dollar index closed down on the day near the lows of the day. Gold closed near the highs of the day. I mean, not a big move. It was up about nine bucks, but we still managed to rise and the dollar managed to fall despite the fact that during the press conference, one of the things that Powell repeated was his assurance that if the Fed is wrong and if this pickup in inflation that the Fed has acknowledged is well above 2%, but if it turns out that it's not transitory, the Fed is going to use its tools. Powell said, and this is one of the things he said in the press conference, that if inflation is significantly and materially above its goal of 2%, which of course it already is. So the question is, how long does it have to be significantly and materially above 2% when it's already met that criteria, despite the fact that neither significantly nor materially is actually defined? But given how much higher than 2% we are right now, I think based on any definition, even one that's not disclosed, what we have now would qualify. But what Powell said is that if inflation does persist to be significantly and materially above its goal, that it will use its tools to guide inflation 
back down to 2%. Now, maybe, maybe the markets are finally calling the Fed's bluff, that it has no intention or ability to use those tools. Because that may be why, despite the Fed's insistence that it stands ready to fight inflation, which up until now has been a major factor keeping the price of gold down and keeping the dollar up, the fact that the dollar sold off and gold rose, maybe this indicates that the markets have called the Fed's bluff. And if it does indicate that, if in fact that is what the markets have done, then really it's game over. Now, it's not game over immediately, so it's more the beginning of the end because the decline that we saw in the dollar today and the increase in the price of gold was very small. The key is, is it a harbinger of much bigger moves that lie ahead? Now, let me get to some of the other comments that were made during the press conference. Oh, and by the way, too, before I even get to these comments, also earlier in the day, we got the news that this bipartisan coalition in the Senate has agreed to a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. So the path for this bill has now been paved. And what nobody seems to appreciate is where does this $1.2 trillion come from? Right? Because we don't have the money and there are no real tax increases to pay for it. So this is all going to be paid for through inflation. Right, The government is going to issue bonds, which the Federal Reserve is going to buy, and they are going to buy the bonds by creating new money out of thin air that did not exist. And now the government is going to take this newly created money and it's going to use it to go into the market and bid up raw material prices and bid up labor prices in order to do the infrastructure program. So what is this going to do? Push up prices. This is more fuel on a roaring inflationary fire. So, you know, none of this, of course, even came up in the press conference. By the way, I did read an article. This is a bit off topic, but I might as well introduce it here. Sheila Baird, who, you know, I talked about her because she was in that documentary about the Fed, a frontline documentary by PBS. And, you know, she at least acknowledged the problems of moral hazard that the Fed had created. Of course, she ignored all the moral hazards that her own agency that she used to head, the FDIC, created. Uh, But forgetting about that, she was correct in the moral hazards of the Fed. But if you remember, when I did that podcast, I said that I thought the hidden agenda behind Frontline was to try to say that the Fed had been using its monetary powers inappropriately, that it was using them to enrich Wall Street And what they really should do is use those powers to enrich Main Street as if the Fed could enrich anybody by just creating inflation. But there was an article that just came out by Sheila Baird that that called for just that. She wants the Federal Reserve to start creating digital dollars, digital currency, and send it directly to the people into their digital wallets, right? Bypassing Congress, right? Not waiting for Congress to pass the stimulus. Just give the Federal Reserve power to send money digital money directly to individuals who could immediately spend it. And she actually thinks that this is a good idea. Of course, it's an impossible idea to do legally because the Federal Reserve can't do that. Because in order for the Federal Reserve to introduce new Federal Reserve notes into the economy, and they are notes, they are liabilities, even though they technically don't have to actually pay anything like they used to when they actually had to pay gold, they don't have to pay anything, but they need an asset for each liability. So when the Fed puts new dollars into the economy, it takes 
existing treasuries or mortgage-backed securities out of the economy. So its liabilities grow, but its assets grow. That's the whole balance sheet. The Fed just can't put money out there without buying an asset. It needs to have an asset to correspond to the liability because that's the only way the Fed can shrink the money supply. If there's too much money out there and there's inflation, the Fed sells its assets to get back its liabilities to retire them. But if the Fed simply puts digital money out there and gives it to people to spend, it has no way to get those digital dollars back off the books. It can't bring them back because it has nothing to sell to get them back. So this would be a complete engine of inflation. It would just be turning the Federal Reserve into an inflation machine which was actually on autopilot, which would be a complete disaster. Now, I think at least Shaler Baird in her op-ed that she wrote said that in order to do this, we would have to you know, amend the Federal Reserve Act so Congress would have to authorize this harebrained scheme. But she didn't think it was a harebrained scheme. She thought it was a good idea, which again, this is where we're going. Even if we don't do it this way, it's going to be QE for the people. We're going to be printing a lot more money, but finding a way to focus that money directly to Main Street, not to Wall Street. But all that means is that rather than the inflation primarily manifesting itself in asset prices like stocks, it's going to manifest more predominantly in goods prices like food, like energy, like clothing, like all that stuff. So at the time where the Fed is thinking that all this is transitory, all the evidence that we're seeing is that not only isn't it transitory, it's about to explode to levels never before experienced. But let me get back now to the conference, the Q&A. So the first question came from Steve Leisman of CNBC. And, and he actually wanted Powell to define substantial further progress. Because after all, that is the criteria that the Fed has thrown out there. They need to see substantial further progress before they you know, withdraw the accommodation, which would start the taper and eventually some way down the line, a rate hike. And of course, Powell went out of his way not to answer that question, which he did not do because there is no answer. Because as far as I'm concerned, there is no amount of progress that would be substantial enough to actually allow the Fed to withdraw its monetary support, because it can't because the entire economy is resting on the foundation of that support. And in fact, not only won't the Fed be able to withdraw the support, it's going to have to increase the amount. Because again, the support is like a drug. And the more we take the drug, the more of the drug we need to stay high. So in order to prevent everything from collapsing, the Fed is going to have to up the amount of monetary heroin that it is ejecting into the economy. So that's why they can't answer the question because there is no way to answer it other than to admit that you can never withdraw the support, which the Fed can't admit because that would make the problem that they're trying to avoid much worse. And it would accelerate the timetable for when they have to deal with it. And in fact, one of the other, and I forget the name of this guy, but somebody else asked Powell specifically, about interest rates. Like, you know, when is the Fed going to get around to raising rates? And in Powell's answer, he basically said, hey, look, I mean, raising interest rates isn't even on our radar yet, right? So why are we even talking about raising rates? Because that's not even on our radar, right? We're not even 
looking at it. We're not even thinking about it. That's so far in the future, right, that, you know, it's not on our radar, which, of course, is a true statement. It's not on their radar by design. In fact, when it comes to raising interest rates, I don't even think the Fed has a radar. So it'll never be there because the Fed can't raise interest rates. If they could, they would have already done it. The fact that they haven't done it is proof that they can't. It's just that the markets still haven't come to terms with this. Now, maybe, as I said earlier, maybe gold's reaction, the dollar's reaction, evidences that they have, but I think it's a little premature to necessarily come to that conclusion. So we need to see how these trends potentially play out in the days ahead to see if we get more buying in gold and more selling in the dollar to really show that the markets are getting wise to the Fed's con. Somebody actually asked Powell about whether the Fed would be willing to raise interest rates to fight inflation, even if the labor markets hadn't fully recovered. And I thought that was a very good question. It's unfortunate that we didn't get an answer. And of course, we're not going to get an answer because, again, the Fed can't answer it because the markets can't handle the truth. So Powell is going to avoid it. And it was a a particularly appropriate question because earlier in the Q&A, Powell had specifically pointed out that the Fed is not even going to think about whether or not the uptick in inflation is transitory or not until we reach full employment. Because according to Powell, as long as we're not at full employment, he doesn't really think we have to worry about inflation. And so he's not going to until we have full employment. Now, of course, full employment is like, you know, what is it? There's no set answer. It's kind of in the eye of the beholder, right? It's like, you know, what is pornography? Well, I know it when I see it. Well, supposedly the same thing applies to full employment because the level of unemployment that we have right now in periods of the past, what we've got right now, people would have considered this full employment, but it's not because we're comparing it to the record low unemployment that we had, at least on paper, before the pandemic. But one of the things that Powell is looking at to conclude that we're nowhere close to full employment is the labor force participation rate, which he is waiting for a increase, a return to the labor force of a lot of people who left the labor force, and they may never come back. You know, it's going to be like waiting for Godot. There are a lot of reasons, and many of them are man-made, why a lot of the people who left the labor market are not going to come back. So if Powell is simply stuck on labor force participation, which has been falling for a long time, I mean, this trend existed long before COVID and it's going to continue. If Powell is saying, well, I'm not going to even concern myself about inflation or whether or not it's transitory until we're at full employment, we're never going to be there. So in other words, he's admitting that the Fed is never actually going to pay attention to inflation and means that inflation is going to keep getting worse and worse. So as a result, I guess, of him making this statement, which of course completely overlooks the possibility of stagflation, because he thinks that that's impossible, that, well, as long as we have this unemployment, we have slack in the labor market, well, we're not going to have protracted inflation. Uh, But this guy, whoever it was, asked the question, well, what if... We're not at full employment. Perish the thought. I know it's totally hypothetical, but what if this happens and inflation is higher? Are you willing to raise rates? 
And basically, his answer was to basically deny that such a condition uh, would exist. So it's almost like there's no point in entertaining this hypothetical when the situation is not going to happen. But he did come back to, well, if it does, right, in, in the unlikely event that we do have a pickup in inflation that the Fed determines not to be transitory and we're not at full employment, well, the Fed is going to have to do something about the inflation problem without actually talking about what the consequences of doing something would be, which would be horrific. Because, you know, the longer the Fed rates to do something about inflation, the worse the inflation is going to be when it finally gets around to doing something about it. And the more damage its tools are going to do to this bubble economy, because the longer it ignores inflation, the bigger the fire, the harder it is to put out. And putting out the fire means rate hikes. But it's not these quarter point rate hikes. I don't know why people still think that, oh, if inflation turns out to be five or six or seven percent, well, it just means that that quarter point rate hike that we thought was going to happen in 2023 is going to happen in 2022, and that that's the only consequence of inflation being so much higher than two percent. You can't put out five, six, seven, eight percent inflation with a quarter point rate hike or a half a point rate hike. I mean, talk about bringing a knife to a gunfight. I mean, you're not even bringing a knife. You're bringing a pea shooter, like like a straw with a little pea. I mean, you've got nothing. If you are going to fight inflation that is that far out of control, as I said, the Fed's going to have to get medieval on inflation. It's going to have to do a Paul Volcker, which is impossible. We can't even get close to that. So nobody wants to contemplate what the Fed would actually have to do to rein in inflation that's that out of control. Because it can't even rate in the inflation that we got now. Because if it could, it would. The reason it's not is because it can't. Now, one thing that should have bothered the markets was Powell did, in fact, define transitory. And he he basically defined it this way the last time he was asked, and nobody really paid attention. But he was asked again, you know, what's transitory? Meaning, how long? Most people who want the Fed to define transitory they're interested in how long is the transition, right? We've got this rise in inflation and, you know, it's supposedly temporary, right? That's what people think. When they think transitory, they think temporary. Plus, they also think reverse. See, most people think that the price increases in order to qualify as being transitory need to be reversed so that they go back down. Well, Powell threw cold water on that idea. Specifically, he said that transitory inflation does not mean that the price increases are reversed and so that these big gains that we've seen recently are going to be reversed. What Powell said transitory inflation means is that at some point in the future, and he wouldn't say how long into the future, these huge price increases stop and we simply revert to the normal 2% per year price increases. So in other words, according to Powell, If we have, let's say, a two-year period of time where prices go up by 20% a year, right, 40%, right, huge increase in the cost of living. But then after that huge increase, we just go back to 2% a year. As far as the Fed's concerned, the whole thing was transitory and there's nothing that the Fed needs to do. Think about what that means. And even if it's not a 40% increase, what if it's 10% a year for two years and it's 20%, whatever the number is, you're talking about a permanent increase 
in the cost of living that every American has to pay each and every year for the rest of their life. And according to the Fed, it's no big deal so long as after that huge increase that is permanent in the future, we just go back to 2% a year. Now, this, of course, destroys all the Fed's credibility about how low inflation was in the past. Because, you know, we have all these years where inflation was 1% or 1.5%. Well, then if we have a couple of years of 10% back-to-back, all that is destroyed. Because then if you go backwards and you average the annual rate of inflation, it becomes a huge number that's way, way above the Fed's 2%. Even after that huge number, if we just go back to 2%, How can the Fed with a straight face claim that it has satisfied its 2% mandate when the average rate of inflation over the entire period is so much higher than 2%? And of course, how can they say with a straight face that we still got inflation at 2%? Because after all, what if we have another transitory period? Maybe it's five years in the future, right? Where inflation spikes up again 10 or 20% for one year, but then comes back down to just 2% a year, right? The Fed's going to say, oh, no big deal. That was another transitory spike in the cost of living. But since we're back down to 2% a year, you know, there's nothing to worry about. This destroys the Fed's credibility. And if the markets have to start anticipating that we're going to have these transitory spikes in inflation every five or 10 years, well, the markets are going to discount that into the average annual inflation expectation. And that means the bond market has to crash, which means that the Fed has to print even more money to prevent it from crashing, which means everybody's going to run from the dollar. Everybody's going to run to gold, right? Once people understand this, I mean, it should be obvious, but it's not. But a lot of things should be obvious and are not. But eventually they are. You know, I've talked about it on this podcast, just like the subprime problems. I was warning about these problems for years. I was laying it out. It was completely obvious to me what was going to happen. But the rest of the financial world was completely oblivious. That's why these bonds were mispriced for so long. But there was a point, and it only took a few days, for the market to actually realize what they got wrong And these bonds that were at par went to zero over the course of a few days and we had the financial crisis. So I think the same thing is going to happen when it comes to the dollar, when it comes to the price of gold. So people out there who are concerned that we haven't seen a bigger increase in the price of gold, that we haven't seen a bigger drop in the dollar, just wait. All this stuff is going to happen. The dollar is going to fall even more than I once thought. Gold is going to soar even higher than I once thought because all these problems have gotten much worse than I once thought because it's taking so much longer for the markets to come to terms and understand the problems. But eventually they will because reality always rears its ugly head and the longer people live in fantasy, the bigger the disruption when it does. Also, Powell was asked about rising wages and whether or not he was concerned there, you know, because if companies are paying higher wages, you know, maybe they're going to pass on those costs to their customers in the form of higher prices. And according to Powell, this is not a problem because according to Powell, the Fed doesn't see any evidence that companies are passing on their higher wages. Well, really? So they're just going to absorb it? I mean, because I haven't seen this huge spike in productivity uh, that would enable all these companies to just pay higher wages. So either their profits are going to collapse or they're going to raise prices. And my guess is it's going to be a little bit of both, but 
there are going to be significant price increases. Now, it is possible that some of the companies out there have been a bit reluctant to pass on the higher labor costs to customers because they didn't want to jump the gun. They didn't want to raise prices and then have to reduce prices. There was a lot of talk that what they were seeing with their costs was all transitory. So maybe companies just assumed that it was transitory and maybe gave the Fed the benefit of the doubt. And so we're holding off on some of these price increases, but there's a limit to how long they're going to hold off. So even if this is partially correct, that we haven't seen companies raise prices yet to reflect the increase in wages, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. For some reason, Powell is confident that it's never going to happen just because it hasn't already happened. Meanwhile, the process just got started. And Powell, of course, looks back to the inflation of the 1970s, and he's convinced that the wage price spiral was a major factor behind the inflation. In other words, Powell believes that it was the fact that wages were driving prices up that we had an inflation problem. He's wrong. The reason we had an inflation problem was because the Fed printed too much money to monetize uh, large deficits from the government. It was the money printing that caused both wages and prices to rise. It wasn't just wages happened to start rising on their own and that because wages went up, prices went up because companies passed on those higher costs and we went into this wage price spiral. Wages are prices. That's what they are. They're the price of labor. All prices were going up because of the inflation the Federal Reserve was creating. That was the dynamic. It had nothing to do with this wage price spiral. That was just the way the government tried to shift the blame for inflation on the private sector rather than accept responsibility themselves. Because if you blame rising prices on rising wages, well, then it lets the Fed off the hook. Well, we're not causing it. It's just these Unions and workers are just demanding higher pay. And then, well, then the companies are just passing on those higher wages, right? As if none of this is the responsibility of the Fed. But of course, the entire process is put into motion by the Fed. And that is what's happening this time, except now the Fed has put into motion an even bigger spiral. So yes, wages are going to go up, prices are going to go up, then wages are going to go up, then prices are going to go up. But it's not this wage price spiral that's causing it. It's the Fed. It's the spiraling of the money supply. And in fact, I think the way the government is going to react to rising wages and rising prices, hurting the economy, right, hurting real consumer spending is going to be to stimulate the economy by creating even more inflation so that people have even more money to spend, which is going to fuel the fire. But my advice is consistent and it's the same. Do not wait for the markets to figure this out. Do not wait until everybody finally understands the predicament that the Fed is in. Because believe me, when that happens, and it's going to happen, there will be an epiphany and everybody is going to come to this conclusion pretty much at the same time. And everybody is going to run for the exit at the same time. And the exit is very small and there's no way to get out. The only way to get out is to exit before the crowd. Now, obviously, I'm way before the crowd. But, you know, I was way before the crowd on the housing market. I'm even further before the crowd now. I've been talking about this for a long time. Just because the market hasn't blown up uh, doesn't mean I haven't been right. I have been right. Everything that has happened economically has simply 
provided more and more evidence that I'm right. So our patience is going to be rewarded. Of course, there's an opportunity here for people who are just arriving with my strategy, and maybe you've been in the U.S. stock market and you've been lucky enough to go along for the ride. You can count your blessings and get out now before the collapse, and you can get fully positioned into this strategy because not only are we going to revert out of growth into value, and this trend has already changed. The flows have already started, the shift, but it's going to be a massive rotation out of U.S. stocks into international stocks and into real assets, into commodities, into gold and silver. I've been positioning for this outcome for years and years, anticipating it, and I think now we are here. And in fact, one of the other factors that I think is particularly important with this dynamic is if you think about the companies, particularly in the U.S., that have attracted investment capital over the last decade, it's been all these high-growth companies that don't really make things. Maybe they, you know, they provide free services on the internet and they they generate revenues uh, from advertisers, right? These are these momentum social media companies that have gained all the new money. They've been going public. So all the investment capital has flowed there. The companies that actually make stuff, the real companies that generate profits and make the stuff that we buy, they haven't been able to generate any capital. In fact, what they've had to do in order to maintain their share price, because investors aren't interested because they want something hot that's moving up faster, is a lot of these companies instead of investing their profits in expanding their capacity, plant and equipment to produce more stuff, they've used what profits they've had to buy back their stock because the investors aren't doing it. So they're buying it themselves in order to try to compete with the era of the market where all the new capital is flowing. So that's part of the problem. We've been printing all this money to create all this demand, but we haven't been investing in productive plant and equipment to produce more goods, which is why we're more and more reliant on the rest of the world to produce the goods that we don't, which is why these trade deaths are exploding. But here is why I wanted to bring this point up. I think that one of the ways a lot of these companies that are experiencing huge increases in raw material costs and labor costs, one of the ways that they're going to reduce the amount by which they're going to have to raise their prices is they are going to look for what costs they can cut. And I think the number one costs that companies throughout the U.S. are going to be cutting next year is going to be advertising. I think ad budgets are going to be slashed. Meanwhile, you have all of these companies that are dependent on advertising spending. And there's more and more of them. We keep getting new companies that are going public and the only way they make money is by selling ads. They're not making any money selling their products or services, right? They give away their products or services. And the model is we're just going to make it up with ads. The problem is all these companies are depending on the same group of advertisers. There's only so much ad money to go around. And now when you have all these companies who were advertising, who are now spending more for raw materials and spending more for labor, something's got to give and it's going to be the ad budgets. That means the revenues of all these high multiple firms are going to implode. So these big stocks are going to come crashing down. The dollar is going to come crashing down. Money is going to be flowing into real things, foreign stocks, value stocks abroad, dividend paying stocks, 
commodities, gold, silver, these mining stocks. So before everybody wakes up, and again, I don't know how much more time we have. Just assume we're running out of time. Just assume you got to do this now because the consequences are high. The stakes are very high if you wait too long. So it's better to be too early than too late. But you know what? If you're positioning yourself now in the scheme of things, even if it's a little early, it's almost perfect because as far as I'm concerned, the clock has almost completely wound down. Thank you.